So with that, uh, let's pray, and we'll look at Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. Uh, Father, we do thank you and praise you for this day. We thank you for your word. Lord, this, uh, this book of Revelation is uh, it's weighty because it reveals Christ in his glory. Um, it reveals him for who he is. And so, Lord, we ask that your spirit, that he would guide us today, that he would illuminate uh, your words, that we would understand what is said here, uh, what's said in context, what it meant then, what it means to us today, and that ultimately, Lord, that we as a congregation would worship you in in purity and in truth um, and majesty for who you are. Lord, I ask that you would help us um, to realign our priorities so that we would um, just put you first in all things. Our flesh is strong. The temptations are real around us. And so, Lord, we ask that you would move mightily uh, in this, these few minutes that we have uh, to study your word, uh, to dwell upon the things that you have revealed to us uh, through your word. And it's in Christ's holy name we pray. Amen. Revelation chapter 2, verse 1. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands, says this, I know your deeds and your toil and perseverance and that you cannot tolerate evil men. And you put to the test those who call themselves apostles, and they are not. And you found them to be false. And you have perseverance and have endured for my name's sake and have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Therefore, remember from where you have fallen and repent, and do the deeds you did at first, or else I am coming to you and will remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. Yet this you do have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has ear, who, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Father, we do thank you again for your word. Lord, we recognize this as holy. And so, Father, we ask that your spirit would lead us, that he would guide us, that he would guard us from error, that our hearts would be softened, that we would... um, be rekindled in our love for you. Or for those that don't know you, Lord, that that love would be sparked uh, for you. Uh, We are grateful, Lord, for all that you're doing in our midst. We are grateful for all that you've done in our lives. And it's in Christ's holy name we pray. Amen. I found this week that this section has, like, just moved me with emotion. Like, it's, it's kind of shaken me up a little bit in a good way. And, uh, We'll get into that. To remind us, we're, we're now in our third week of the book of Revelation. 
Things have been going along smoothly. Um, (laughs) I'm still thinking about how we're going to handle chapter 8 and beyond. I'm not committing to anything there. I'm still desperately wrestling with it to figure out what is the best way to convey the, the overarching picture so that we walk away with an understanding of God's word. Um, to remind us where we've been, not so much in review, there are CDs and the messages are online if you want to get caught up if you missed the last couple weeks, um, but going back to chapter 1, verse 19, which we covered last week, the Apostle John writes, therefore, write the things, or Jesus, I should say, said, therefore, write the things which you have seen and the things which are and the things that will take place after these things. This is an outline of the book of Revelation, quite literally. Uh, The things which you have seen are known as chapter 1, this great image of Jesus that the Apostle John saw. He then goes on to say, and the things which are. This is sort of present-day teaching. Uh, Chapters 2 and 3, which we're going to embark on a seven-week study on the churches, uh, present-day sort of uh, the, basically, the church is on trial, and Jesus is cross-examining the church for the things that they have done, the things that they are doing. And so John writes about uh, these issues of the literal churches that existed during the time of writing, which also transcend um, 2,000 years, different cultures, the local church, and present context. And so we're going to look at the seven churches found in chapters 2 and 3. And then he says, and the things which will take place after these things, that begins in uh, chapter 4 through the end of Revelation, essentially. And so we enter in verse 1, chapter 2, and we read to the angel of the church in Ephesus, right? Um, There are seven churches that are going to be addressed. If we can go to the next slide, Um, just we've seen this, we've seen this image a couple times. Between chapters 2 and 3, you'll see to the blank church write this. And so we start at Ephesus. We're going to talk a lot about Ephesus today because Ephesus is the, the context of, uh, of today's portion. But as you would go from Patmos, where the Apostle John is, if you would take essentially a ferry, for lack of better terms, um, into Ephesus. Ephesus is a huge city. It was a huge church. It likely was the church that planted the other six churches, and there was a Roman road that went around, and as you hopped on the Roman road and you traveled around, you would hit the six other churches. And so uh, as things unfold in Revelation chapter 2 and 3, the the churches are brought up in order um, that the various messengers would have um, taken the letter to. And so we're first introduced um, to this angel of the church, in Ephesus, right. Now, on this angel, there's a couple different thoughts. <clears throat> One thought is that it's like, okay, this is a, an angel means messenger, so it's just a literal messenger. Uh, that's not really widely held. Um, last week, when I mentioned, uh, let's see here. So in verses 12 through 16 of chapter 1, there's the image of Christ. We're told about the seven lampstands. We're told about the seven stars in the right hand of the Son of Man. And and in verse 20, he says that these seven stars which you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. So last week I was kind of like, we don't really know. Maybe these are angels. You know, 
what are these angels of the churches? But then as we unfold into chapters 2 and 3, my conviction is being that is leaning towards the, the, the widely held view that these angels, um, reference to each church, to the seven churches, that these are the, like the, the lead shepherd, the, the senior pastor. Probably they didn't have that title, but it would have been the man who was responsible for overseeing, shepherding, leading the church at the various location. And so this letter was given to that man, which um, in many ways for me as a senior pastor, a lead pastor of a local congregation, it kind of brings a lot of encouragement. It doesn't bring fear. It's like, how awesome is that, that Christ is holding his shepherds in his hand, sort of leading them and guiding them and helping them on their way. And he says to the angel of the church in Ephesus, write. So now with Ephesus, it's a literal church that actually existed during the time of writing. The reason I stress this is because there are some who hold that this is more of a metaphor dealing with the church at large, like over church history, that each one of these seven churches weren't literal churches, that they were actually, it represents things that have unfolded within the church age over the course of the last 2,000 years. I don't think grammatically that's the way to handle this. I there was a, a church in Ephesus. We know much about this church. Um, if you want to go to Acts 19, no, I'm going to ask you, go to Acts 19, just find it and bookmark it. We're not going to go there just yet. But in Acts chapter 19, the Apostle Paul uh, established the church in Ephesus. And as the story in chapter 19 and partway into chapter 20 or at the end of chapter 20 unfolds about this church, you learn a lot about the city. It is the location of one of the seven ancient wonders of... It, it is the location of one of the seven ancient wonders of the world. So the temple of uh, Diana or Artemis, these are the Roman and the Greek words, so you'll see them interchanged. As you went into the port of the city or you came to the city through Roman roads... Um, there was a huge hill, and on top of that hill was this temple. And the city revolved around the worship of Diana. Um, the city was thoroughly pagan. It was known as a free city within the Roman, within the Roman rule. They had much freedom. Um, it was like a modern-day like a modern-day New York City or Long Beach. I think of a major har harbor where all of like the railroads and the, the roads come through to get all of this stuff out. It was the heart of the world at the time. And so this was a town of extreme influence. And so Paul, when he arrives on scene, he gets there, he meets some disciples, and he's like, you guys seem really close now. Tell me about what you've heard. Like, like, what is this that you've been baptized into? And they say, oh, yeah, John the Baptist. And so word had gotten to them about the things of John the Baptist, but the message of Christ hadn't made its way there. And so Paul shares with them about the gospel. Uh, people come to faith in Christ. We're told that extraordinary things happen, like Paul's handkerchief, like people would touch it and they would be healed. And, and just amazing things are happening. Lives are being transformed. People are being convicted of this, this um, idol worship that they participated in. And so eventually from this, they decided to get, gather all of their books 
and they had a good old-fashioned book burning, and, and it like sent the whole town into a riot. Um, there was a, a silversmith. Basically, he gets the whole steel union upset at him because this whole town revolved around making trinket, trinkets and for worshiping Diana. And so now that they're burning the books, nobody's going to like, the guy literally says, they have the audacity to say that the things that we're making with our hands are not actually gods. How could they? And so they, they fill the Colosseum. They had a huge theater, not Colosseum, but a theater. The remains still exist today. Um, they had a huge library. They fill this thing. They want to string up Paul and basically kick him out of town. And through this whole thing, they calm down. But the, the church we see was under great persecution. They, um, this was a church that had some of the heavy hitters in the early church shepherd it. We, it. It started with the Apostle Paul. We see that in 1 Timothy 1.3 that Timothy was appointed to head this church. And then tradition holds that later in the John the Apostle's life that John the Apostle was like the third pastor to sort of oversee this church. Those are some big names. And so this church was important. Not, re- not really important at all, but Ephesians is one of my favorite books of the Bible. If you can only take one book of the Bible to a desert island, you know the great, if we ever get stranded on an island and you're given an option to only take one book of the Bible, very realistic that this could happen to you. My recommendation is you take Ephesians <laughs> because it's like so much is there in that one little book. So much is there. Um, my, my favorite scene in the whole Bible dealt with the elders of Ephesus, that, that Paul, as he was on the way to his execution, he gathered these guys and had this wartime talk with them. In fact, go over to Acts 20. I asked you to hold your spot. Uh, and so in Acts chapter 20, <clears throat> and the reason we're going there is not just because this is my favorite scene in the whole Bible. Well, I have so many favorite scenes and books of the Bible, like, but this one's really, really good. And it really applies to the situation that we're going to read in Revelation. This is some 35 years prior to the writing of Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. Um, I said verse 17. Is that actually where I want to? I'm in 21. That's why it's not making sense to me. Let's go back to verse 13. So Acts chapter 20, verse 13. And we read, But we going ahead to the ships that sail for Assos, intending from there to take Paul on board. For so he had arranged it, intending himself to go by land. And when we met, when he met us at Assos, we took him on board and came to Midilene. Sailing from there, we arrived following the, uh, fo- the following day, opposite of Chios, and the next day we crossed over to Samos. And the day following, we came to Miletus. For Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus so that we, he would not have to spend time in Asia, for he was hurrying to be in Jerusalem if poss- possible on the day of Pentecost. So Paul is on a mission. He knows that when he goes to Jerusalem, he's going to be executed. Like he realizes he's going to be taken into custody. Things are going to be bad. He has the opportunity to stop in Ephesus, but he says, let's keep sailing. I don't want to get delayed there. Why would Paul get delayed there? 
Paul had like a Bible college set up where he taught day in and day out. It's the longest place uh, that Paul ever was. We're going to see that he spent three years in Ephesus training up and equipping men for the work of the ministry. And so he says, let's sail past Ephesus. And as soon as I find my place, um, verse 17 from Miletus. Okay, he wanted to get to Pentecost, verse 17. From Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called to him the elders of the church. And when they had come to him, he, he said to them, you yourselves know from the first day that I set foot in Asia, how I was with you the whole time, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials which came upon me through the plots of the Jews, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you publicly from house to house, solemnly testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now behold, bound in spirit, I am on my way to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit solemnly testifies to me in every city, saying that bonds and afflictions await me. But I do not consider my life of any account as dear to myself, so that I may finish my course and the ministry which I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify solemnly of the gospel of the grace of God. And now behold, I know that all of you among whom I went about preaching the kingdom will no longer see my face. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all men. For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole purpose of God. Now, verse 28 through 31 specifically relate to where we're going in Revelation. I imagine these guys. In my mind, this is like it taps into my military side, and I imagine like a squad of my SEAL brothers, like in a combat mission where we quickly gather together, our, not necessarily our arms around each other literally, um, but in the early hours of the morning where the lieutenant is giving like a mission tasking to us because of the severity of the situation. And so in verse 28, Paul tells these young elders, be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. I know that after my departure, salvage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, men will arise speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be on the alert, remembering that night and day for a period of three years, I did not cease to admonish each one with tears. And now I commend to you, now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among those who are sanctified. I have coveted no one's silver or gold or clothes. You yourselves know that these hands ministered <clears throat> to my own needs and to the men who are with me. In everything I showed you, that by working hard in this manner you must help the weak. And remember the words of the Lord Jesus, that he himself said it is more blessed to give than to receive when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And they began to weep aloud. And they embraced Paul. And they repeatedly kissed him. 
grieving, especially over the word which he had spoken, that they would not see his face again. And they were accompanied him to the ship. So this is like an intense moment. I'm sorry, I'm not getting choked up to be theatrical. That's not me. Like the, the intensity of this scene from, from guys who are fellow co-laborers, who are soldiers, who, who labored for the Lord. This Paul who they loved and they served, but he said, guys, I'm going away and I'm going to be executed. And wolves are going to come in and they're going to decimate the church. They're going to try to attack you with, with lies. They're going to bring in false teaching. And it's up to you, it's up to you to protect this church that God has made you overseers of. Watch out for wolves. And they're weeping, they're crying, they send off Paul, he would never come back. So now we find ourselves back in Revelation. Sort of fast forwarding 35 years or so, probably a little bit less, but around 35 years. And so when we see this to the angel of the church in Ephesus, right? So this was probably a pastor that followed in the shoes of John the Apostle. One of these young men who was called up to shepherd this very important church that was under attack. Um, If you read the story about what was going on in Ephesus when Paul was there, one of the guys trying to stop the riot from happening, he says, listen, guys, we understand that it's our duty that... Ephesus, the city of Ephesus is the guardian of Diana. That the city existed to protect this false idol and the church was there challenging the idolatry of, 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 of the worship of this false god. There was severe persecution. And while it's to the church, I do want to point out, go, just shoot down to verse 7. We read, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, plural. In every one of these sections dealing with the seven churches, Jesus deals with a specific church, but then he also says it's to all of the churches. So if you're a church, if you're a part of Christ's church, don't ignore the warnings here. There are universal truths in each one of these letters that we'll look at. So to the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven golden lamps says, says this. So you guys remember the image last week? <laughs> Chapter 1, verses 12 through 16. John said he looked up after hearing the mariachi band behind him. <clears throat> Turns around, and then he sees this image. And he says, it was one like the Son of Man with this robe and a golden sash. And he described his hair like, like white wool. Um, he said his eyes, if I remember right, were like flames. Uh, his feet were, were like steel that had been placed in the fire and were burning. And we're told that he was standing amongst these seven lampstands, which he later tells us is the church um, Then he talks about the right hand of these seven stars, these angels of these seven churches. In this section, there's there's a shift from last week. It says, the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, nothing new there. He says, the one who walks among the seven lampstands. So last week he was standing amongst them. Today he's walking, and the image seems to be that this is 
This is a picture of the priesthood, that it was the priest's responsibility within the temple to, to keep everything up and running, to make sure that everything was operating. And I think at the point of this image, and every week Jesus is going to be described in a slightly different, from a, from a different angle, uh, dealing with different things for the specific churches. But, but in this one, it seems to be saying that Jesus is central to and Lord over the local church, that he is completely in charge. And he's saying, remember that guy I described in chapter one? This is the guy who's speaking, so pay attention. <clears throat> and this guy says, verse two, I know your deeds and your toil and your perseverance. Um, Jesus knows all about them and us individually and collectively. Um, It's an important reminder that as we look at this, this text is not about you. It's not about me individually, but it's about the church, which you and me individually, collectively, we are. So, So while it speaks to us individually, it's identifying the importance of us as believers to be collectively gathered. It's important biblically as followers of Christ to be committed to a local church. And so he's saying, I know your deeds. Um, I know your perseverance. This word perseverance is important. Remember, John identified himself back in chapter one as a fellow partaker that that in the midst of their suffering, he was a partaker with them. He was persevering with them. And now Jesus tells the church in Ephesus, I know your good deeds. I know your toil. I know your perseverance. It's good. We've talked about Ephesus in chapter 19. This was a church under extreme persecution. And they endured. They, They didn't buckle at the pressure that they were under. They held true. Um, They had resiliency to them. Um, They had doctrinal discernment as we continue in verse 2. And that you cannot tolerate evil men. And you put to the test those that will call themselves apostles, those who call themselves apostles, and they are not. And you found them to be false. Skipping down to verse 6. Yet this you do have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. There's a lot of speculation about these Nicolaitan dudes, and they'll come up later, and whether or not I address the, I'll, I'll, the speculation about them, there's, there's, there's a couple different thoughts. <clears throat> the, the main thought is that they hated them. <laughs> there was something about that they were doing that was really wrong. We know that to be true. And it's interesting that we're told here that Jesus also hated their deeds. And so this church is being commended for their doctrinal discernment that they cared about purity of worship and teaching, that they stayed truth, true to the word of God. Everything that Paul warned them about back in Acts chapter 20, over the course of the 35 years, this church has remained true to the calling that Paul gave to them. Spurgeon on this point says this. I love Spurgeon sometimes. Uh, sometimes, you know, I'm not going to endorse every word of every man. But he says this was grand of them. It showed a backbone of truth. I wish some of the churches of this age had a little of this holy decision about them. For nowadays, the 1800s, you know, 
For nowadays, if a man be clever, he may preach the vilest lie that was ever vomited from the mouth of hell, and it will go down with some. Spurgeon's, I mean, he says this was awesome of them, that they knew the truth, they stood behind the truth, and they weren't afraid to confront those that were liars and those that were trying to, to lead astray Christ's church. Holiness and purity matter to the church at Ephesus. And Jesus is saying, well done. This is good. I applaud you in these efforts. I do want to point out about these Nicolaitans. He doesn't say he hated the Nicolaitans. He says he hates the deeds of the Nicolaitans, and they hated the deeds of the Nicolaitans. This sort of comes to the saying that we all know, you know, to hate the sin and to love the sinner. Um, it reminds me of John 17 in the high priestly prayer of Jesus when he says they're, not of the, they're in the world but not of the world. And this is, a, this is something that I don't have the answer to. Um, but the strain is real. Like how do we live this out? How do we live out hating sin and loving the sinner. In a world where many people, they embody, like, sin isn't distinct from them. Sin is who they are. And so if you say, well, I hate the sin, but love the sinner, it's impossible to do that from their perspective. Um, so it's easy to say it's harder to live out without either compromising biblical truth or condemning the sinner. And so... All I can say is that this is an area that requires you to follow the Spirit of God, for you to be sensitive to His leading, for you to recognize that one believer might be led to respond in one way while another person's conscience might not allow them to respond in that way. Um, I want to be cautious with what I say because of the nature of my own family and, and individuals that I know and love. But I have been condemned for holding views that are... Uh, I have been condemned for holding views that are perceived as condemning their lifestyle. And, and it's... I, I mean, I, I, I love these individuals, um, and it, it, it creates strain within the family. Like if they want to celebrate something and it's like, I don't know if I can go to that or not go to that. And I'll have people that have similar family situations and they'll come to me and they'll say, hey, pastor, am I allowed to go to a baby shower for a situation of this child that's born into this situation? Say, it's tough. <laughs> I can pray for you because I don't have the answer. Like if you want to go, I totally support you. If you feel like you can't go, I totally support you. So I, like, in this world between, like, gender issues and sin being embraced as who we are, I don't know how, or I should say, I acknowledge the difficulty of living out this phrase, hating the sin and loving the sinner. What I can say is that in this passage, you just read verse 6 for yourself. Here Jesus, when he's kind of applauding the church in Ephesus, he says, yet this you do have, a positive thing, because I skipped over the negative thing that we're getting to. 
He says that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. This is something for us to mull over and to consider, that there are deeds that people do that Jesus hates. And somehow we should, through his spirit, to hate evil deeds. We're in the world, not of the world. And all I can say is that it requires us to be abiding in the Spirit because so often we want to get on our holy, righteous horse in our flesh and we do end up condemning people unbiblically, unspiritually, if that's a, not spiritually, not, not honoring Christ. And so I would say that when we're dealing with sin, to, to do it from a very humble position because we all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Like the fact that God saved any one of us makes no sense to me. And I'm not special, and I'll, get, I'll talk more about how unspecial I am in a few minutes. But for now, let's move on. Verse 3, going back to verse 3. And you have perseverance again, and you have endured for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. Like, if we were to stop here, this would just be an amazing church. Like, if Jesus just stopped, I mean, this would should get standing ovation from all of the churches, and we should just be like, we want to be like the Ephesians. Uh, Charles Swindoll on them, he says this, the Ephesian Christians faced special challenges because they refused to bow the knee to the goddess Diana or the images of the emperor, they found themselves maligned, slandered, boycotted, abused. Not unlike the Jewish merchants in Berlin in the 1930s, Christians in Ephesus would have been the objects of physical violence, social ostracism, and economic repression, yet they endured. They bore under the load Clearly, Ephesus had been taught well by its predecessors, Paul, Timothy, and the Apostle John. The, the closest that I can relate to this is hearing about a man that Anna knew when she was a young lady in Spain. There was a man that was a... He was like a handyman, but not, not handy, like uh, fix your sink, but a, a, like a like a craftsman that would create uh, trinkets very much like the guys. And, and when he came to Christ, he became convicted and he refused to make any idols of Mary or any of the saints. And, he, and it basically decimated his business. And he said, I can't make these anymore now that I've come to Christ. And his whole livelihood was cut off. And he said, no, my livelihood's not more, more important than my obedience to Christ. And so if everything's taken from me, so be it. I want to stand before him with, with integrity. You know, maybe the closest thing we have today now is cake bakers in, in Colorado that are, that are standing extreme scrutiny for, for standing for something that they have deep convictions about. Well, let's come to the but, <laughs> the bad part. The most important thing. Verse 4, but I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Something happened 
to this church over the course of 35 years. Because if we were to go back to Ephesians chapter 1, verse 15, and chapter 6, verses 23 through 24, basically the bookends of Ephesians, when Paul wrote the letter to the Ephesians, he accommodated them for their great love. That their love was free of any impurities. They were undefiled. But over the course of 35 years, something shifted. Yesterday I did a wedding. This month I've done a couple weddings. As a pastor, I've done a, I've done a number of weddings. It, in one respect, and now, since we're going to do Fiddler on the Roof for Rosh Hashanah, <coughs> on one hand, I really like weddings. Like, they're super fun. Like, it's a party. And everybody's happy, jovial, smiling. This is wonderful. There's nothing that anybody can do wrong at a wedding between the, 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 the bride and the groom. And I always say, like, on the other hand, like, I get a lot of funerals. Like, I've done way more funerals than I've done weddings. And I always, like, when I get during a long run of funerals, it's like, oh, I just really want a wedding. But the longer I do ministry and the more that I do weddings and funerals, there's almost more power in funerals. Um, because the thing about weddings is you go there and you get the two young kids that are all, like, cloud nine and happy, and I can warn them, and I can tell them, like, and I'm, like, I am not a good counselor. I tend to be more Navy SEAL than my counseling, so I'll just kind of, I tend to chew people out on accident. Just ask you, I'm horrible, I'm really horrible at it, and I'll tell them, like, I'll be like, you guys don't even know what you're getting into, and remember what you're feeling right now because in five years when you're at my office saying you don't even know if you can go on in the marriage, all I'm going to want to do is to slap you and tell you to be a man and to like, I tend to be more hard on the guys. Like I, I imagine a man, you know, 17, 20 years coming home to his wife, having dinner, eating his sandwich and saying, you know what? I don't love you anymore. I'm not going to leave you. I'm going to go through all of the motions. I'll go to the sports for the kids. I'll do all of this, but I just don't love you anymore. But we'll stay married and we'll go through the motions. This, this like, tears me up because this isn't just in theory. This happens all the time, both man and wife. Somehow, uh, an inch at a time, the marriage disintegrates. And well, we ended up different. We no longer love each other. And we'll hold on for whatever reason, but the hurt and the pain and the sorrow, it's devastating. And sitting in counseling sessions like this as a pastor, I, I like understand. Like when Jesus said he hates divorce, he hates divorce because of the hurt and sorrow and pain and agony. That happens to the kids in generations. Decay doesn't happen overnight. It happens like one little compromise at a time, one little like not appreciating. And it's interesting that to me that Jesus calls the church his bride. 
And here he says, the charge I have against you, Ephesians, is not that you're not doing all the churchy stuff that you're supposed to be doing, all of the ministry from the outside, you look good, but you don't love me. You didn't even spend time with me. You're doing all this stuff in my name, but you don't love me. And how do we as a church guard from this? Well, to the answer of this to help you memorize, all I have is like a, a shampoo bottle. Have you guys ever read the instructions to shampoo? It's quite entertaining. <laughs> Get your hair wet. Put a squirt in there. Lather up. It's okay. My hair will be okay. I, uh, <laughs> um, rinse and repeat, right? The three R's. I, well, I don't know if those are three R's, but I have three R's for you. To, to remember, to repent, and to repeat. Jesus says in verse 5, therefore, remember. Remember where you have fallen. Um, this is great advice. You know, he doesn't say... I got ahead of myself. Remember from where you've fallen. Remember back when you first met Jesus. And I don't say this like believing that all of you have actually met Jesus. Like some of you here maybe have never actually encountered Jesus' love. But for those of us who have and those of us who have been going through all the emotions that there's no love inside, but you're going through all of the motions. Jesus says to remember from where you have fallen. And this is great advice. Like I tell people who are struggling with habitual sin and stumbling, hey, when you get drunk or you do this, whatever the this is for you, what are the circumstances surrounding you that caused the this to happen again? Remember, reflect, identify, grow from yourself. We're all going to stumble. It it might be a person, place, or thing. We're not doing charades. Um, But for me, like there were times early in my Christian life when I was really struggling with alcohol. And I realized that there was an individual that I had to cut out the individual because he was my kryptonite. And every time I got around him, we ended up drunk and we could have ended up anywhere by the night was over. Like Like there was no telling. And I'd wake up in the morning going, how did I do it again? He says, so think about it. Remember from where you have fallen. What things are stagnating your growth and your love for Christ? Stop it. For those of you that know the video, that's my counseling. That's a different story, but... Stop it. If we would just stop it, like we would be so much better. Just stop it. Repent. I mean, that means, like it's, it's the word that kind of like describes like a, ch- like a change, like the, a, a metamorphosis that, that like what a butterfly goes through from caterpillar to butterfly, like that, that there's a change in thought. It doesn't mean that it changes overnight, but that you turn to God and you recognize like this, what I'm doing is wrong, and it's hurting my relationship with you. And I don't know how to stop it, but I believe that you can help me stop it and that you can help me begin to love you the way that you are asking me to do it. And then he says, repeat, do the deeds that you did at first. Now, he doesn't say, he doesn't talk about feelings. He doesn't talk about emotions. 
He says, do the deeds you did at first. Which they were doing a lot of the deeds that they were doing at first, but somehow he said, just reflect on why you're doing the things that you're doing. Remember Christ when you first encountered him and the excitement. Um, my good buddy Miles, Benedictus, for those who know Cross Connection, Miles and I are very good friends. And we often swap notes back and forth about like, hey man, like, and in his notes, he had a paragraph that I really liked. And um, he, he asked the question like, repent and do the first works, kind of like, what are these? And he says, perhaps the early things of the faith before all of our doctrinal positions were thoroughly buttoned up and our, and, and our Christianese fluent. Back when you simply loved God, loved others, and thanked and praised him for his mercy and grace, things like that. I thought that was beautiful. Like just back to the basics, back to the beginning of when you first met Christ. And then in verse 7, Verse 7 is going to be similar in all of the churches. There's, there's an outline that's followed in all of these. I think God's going to repeat things so that we get it. And he says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says of the churches. To him who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in, which is in the paradise of God. And so the, the, the warning is, as he said previously, the, the warning Back in verse 5, I think it was. <clears throat> it says, or else I'm coming to you and I will remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. So it's, this is a good reminder. We're not talking about salvation. This is not being addressed to an individual. This is being addressed to a church. And so there's... This warning that the lampstand, remember the guy who's speaking is this, this image of Christ in all of his glory, glory walking amongst the lampstands. And he says, unless you repent or change, I'm going to do away with this lampstand. There's evidence in following Revelation that the church in Ephesus repented, that they got their course straight, that they did well. But today, if you go to Turkey, all you're going to see is ruins. There's no promise to any church. There is no promise to our church that we will have success. This church, Grace Point, has died in the past. <coughs> 11 years ago, I came here to restart a church that had died after. I mean, we're about 70 years old now in the valley. <coughs> so I think the warning here is that we as a church, if we want to continue living for him and being used by him, we need to stay very close to Jesus. We need to make sure that our love for him is being nourished and encouraged. And I don't know what that means to you. Like for me in a lot of ways, it means I, like people have asked, like, well, why do you make the trips to, to the missionaries? The reality is I make the trips to the missionaries because a lot of times I don't want to. Like I really, I don't want to. Like I, I wish I could just stay in my house and kind of be comfortable and do the things. And when I travel, I do love traveling but I hate it. Like, I hate going, like, I don't want to say I hate going to Israel. It's like a horrible, like, but as a Navy SEAL, traveling to me stirs up other emotions. So when I'm forced to go over to seas, to, to, to countries that I would not choose to go to on my own accord, it forces me to get right with Jesus. It forces me to rekindle the romance that I had with him, to steal from family life, you know, for marriage retreats, 
Like it forces me to get on my knees. It forces me to really cry out to him. It forces me to do these things. And I don't know what things that you all need to do to make sure that your relationship with Jesus is staying fresh. But it's my prayer for you. He says, hear. If you have ears, spiritual ears to hear, hear. It reminds me of Hebrews 3, 7 through 8, that today if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts. I forget who it was, but somebody really spiritually minded said it's the same sun that melts butter also hardens clay. And so we have an obligation to, to till the soil of our hearts that we stay sensitive to him. And I'm thankful that he breaks us. It says, he that overcomes, to him who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, tree of life which is in the paradise of God. I've put it up there. We don't have time to, to, to read it all. But if you want to, I would encourage you to read this week. John 13, 34 through 35, this is at the Last Supper. Um, Jesus has a new command that I give to you to love one another. Then John, the author of this book, in 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 through chapter 5 through 5, all he talks about love. He's like, if you love God, you'll do these things. If you love God, you'll love your brothers. If you do this, you'll be overcomers, he says at the very end of it. And the promise is eternal life. It's fascinating that what is said here, I will grant you to eat of the tree of life which is in the paradise of God. What is a tree of life? We all know about the tree of good and evil in Genesis, but there was another tree. At the very end of chapter three, after they ate from the fruit, sin entered the world, death spread to all men. We're told that there were two angels protecting another tree, this tree of life. And it was by God's grace that he allowed death to come. We don't view death this way, but death is actually God's grace to free us from these bodies that are trapped in sin. And he says, through this, we will eat again from the tree of life. Jesus conquered death. We no longer have to fear death. This week, reflecting on this and the call to remember, I am. Um, I'm going to guard myself. I almost said sorry for getting choked up. I'm not sorry for getting choked up. There are three physical locations in my life that I kind of refer to as holy ground. First is South Lake Tahoe. I haul my family to South Lake Tahoe as often as I can, and, and South Lake Tahoe is beautiful. I love it. Like I, but that's not why I, I, I mean, that's not why I'm drawn there. I'm drawn to South Lake Tahoe because South Lake Tahoe is the physical location where I suffered the worst abuse in my whole life by my mother, my biological mom. I go there and I haul my kids and I say, oh, look at these apartments. I used to live in that one. And this, there's a playground. But it used to be a swimming pool and my mom tried to drown me in that pool. <laughs> Sick sense of humor. My kid, Anna like, is like, I don't know why I keep coming back. It's so hard on me. And I'm like, I need to come back because I need to remember where I came from. And I'll say, oh, I remember going to the street. My mom like unloaded on me on this spot. The other spot is Bud's Compound, SEAL training. I go back to retirement ceremonies and I think, oh man, I was such a hooligan. And I was such a tool and I was such a mess. 
And how in the world did God save me out of this? Just this week, my family, we spent two days, uh, my third spot, a holy ground, which I'm probably the only person in, ever in the world to refer to Garnett on Pacific Beach as holy ground. <laughs> so this week, we stayed down at the beach for like Sunday night for Ellie's birthday. We kind of celebrated. And it's like, okay, let's go walk to the Spanish restaurant. And so we're walking down Garnett. Little Gideon's like going, singing the song, My Lighthouse, and I'll spare you my singing it because I don't even know the words. He's singing this little Christian song. And I'm sitting there like fighting tears. Then all in the midst of all these tattoo parlors and bars, and hey, that's the bar I got thrown out of. I got kicked out of that bar, immediately walked next door to the tattoo parlor, and the guy, the Hales Angel, who just got out of prison, we were sitting there drinking a Budweiser while he decided to tattoo me. It seemed like such a great idea at the time. And I just see this whole street. And I'm walking through the street with my beautiful little family, my little boy singing my lighthouse. And I'm thinking, thank you, Lord. I remember these days. You guys just know me as a pastor. This is a guy who teaches the Bible, who has degrees and does Christian stuff and speaks and doesn't swear. But I remember. I remember the gunner on those streets that got kicked out of bars every single Tuesday night with all my SEAL buddies raising something, you know? (laughs) And there he touched me. He relented against me. And he said, Gunner, I have a plan for you. You need to meet Jesus. And he transformed my life. And so I go back to these holy spots, and it, it gets me off my little pastor pedestal. And it reminds me that I'm a sinner that's been saved by grace, and God is good. And I want to have that relationship with him, and I don't want my relationship to grow cold. And he doesn't want our relationship to grow cold. So I'd encourage you guys pray to read these verses on love because in that passage of 1 John, it's where the verse of we loved because he first loved us. Let's pray. We're out of time. Father, we, um, I am in just awe of you. My voice is quivering because I'm crying out of your goodness. Lord, none of us deserve your love. All of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All of us wander from you. All of us, if left unchecked, we would be doing vile things. And your word tells us that you love us. Not that you you love us, but that you made a way that we might be reconciled to you, that your son, Jesus, went to the cross on our behalf and that all the wrath, all of the punishment, everything that was due us, you laid upon him and he absorbed the wrath that was due sin totally and completely and that he offers us this gift. And Lord, all we can do is just bow before you and say thank you. Lord, we confess that as we have walked with you, it's so easy to wander. It's so easy to to make ourselves out to be good people, righteous people. And in our flesh, we become like the Pharisees, looking down and judging the world around us. And Lord, I acknowledge it's difficult. I don't know how to go about hating sin and loving the sinner because I'm a sinner. 
I struggle, Lord. And so, Father, I pray that you would give us all heart transplants, that we truly would be able to see those around us through your eyes, through your love, that we would be transformed from the inside out. Lord, help our love for you never to grow cold. Your word doesn't say that we lost it. It says that we abandoned you. And so, Father, we ask that you would bring us back to you, that we would find our first love again. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for your long-suffering. We thank you that you never quit. You never give up. You're relentless in pursuing us. Lord, help us not to run from you anymore. We love you. And it's in Christ's good name we pray. Amen.